Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Paul Klinkman has been creating the solution to climate change creatively for more than 50 years, exploring all kinds of innovative techniques, technologies, and methods to save the planet and its species from the ravages of catastrophic climate change. Inspired by a spiritual vision 50 years ago before anyone was talking about global warming, Paul has drawn deeply on his scientific and engineering genius to find a hopeful way forward. Andrew Jansen provided production assistance on today's show. I spoke with Paul Klinkman in person before a small audience at the annual Friends General Conference gathering held at Western Oregon University in Monmouth, Oregon. Paul, it's so wonderful of you to join me for Spirit in Action. Oh, thank you. Before we delve into the details that could lead to some reversing of global warming, in fact, that could do carbon sequestration and other techniques, get down to the place where we have a future for the many species on the planet and for humans in particular. Before we do that, I want to explore a little bit about your background, Paul. I know you as a musician because the noon sings that we have here. I've seen you up there all the time. How did you get involved in activism and then particularly things like your solar business? We'll start with the Vietnam War. That activates people. Finding Quakers, it took a while to get me in the door is really the truth. But I knew all these Quakers, especially from folk dancing. Then they invited me in from potlucks, and I knew nothing about them being Quakers. They were just nice people. But I did know they did war tax resistance. And at some point, I got a bachelor's in computer science, which would have been the perfect degree. And because of my anti-war stance, I was seriously at odds with my professors, and I probably didn't get good job recommendations from them, and I never got a computer job. And after about a year of that, I wound up walking from Boston to Washington on the Continental Walk for Disarmament and Social Justice. At some point around there, I decided that there were a lot of young people that were doing activist things and no old people. And I wanted to say, when I was older, I wanted to be doing activist things. So I started deliberately going to Quaker meeting. But why were you anti-war? I know it was somewhat in the air at the time. It was certainly pretty popular. But was it part of your congregational upbringing? Did that seed you with that? Or was it just in the groups you hung around, your family? If anything, it's that I thought independently. And there was, I'm sorry to say, two teachers that bullied me. And they both came from Army backgrounds. That didn't help. And somewhere around the time of my ninth grade history teacher, he made so little logic that I knew there had to be something wrong with the war. Then the idea came that I could be drafted, and there was something called conscientious objection. And if you objected to all wars, not just the Vietnam War, they wouldn't take you. I could not figure that out, but I said, really? (laughs) That's uh, about what happened, but then I started studying or or learning things from other people. So did this lead to a general form of being progressive, liberal? I would say it led to a general me being really anti-war. I wouldn't call it either progressive or liberal at that point. Things grow. 
with the Quakers, I started having spiritual experiences. I suspect you're going to be asking me about climate change, so I'll just jump in and say something really different. I went to a workshop run by a Dr. Miriam Burke, and I had the unguided version of a guided meditation. This was back in 1981. I saw God, and God was the sun, and the sun went away, and the world got really hot and dry, desert, and it was emanating from a fiery hole in the ground, and I had to do something about it. And on my second try, there was a river, and there were logs in the river, and the logs were people, and I had to move them, each of them, very gently and carefully, because that's how people are, and some are too sensitive to be moved. And I had to move them into a dam that would channel the water of love into the hole in the ground. It took a long, long, long time, and that's what worked. And eventually, I was replaced by two young logs, and eventually I died. And then God came back and said I wouldn't have to do it anymore. And the next day, a voice told me, go to college. And I said, no. I did go to college, and I studied political science, which just was not me, but I needed to do that. And then I got out of college without knowing why I studied political science, master's, and my sister, she'd gotten into Brown University, and she was work-studying, counting pollen and bugs for a geologist, and she said, uh, Tom needs a programmer. And Tom was a climatologist. And a year later, Tom started lecturing, Tom Webb, he started lecturing on this brand new thing that he had just discovered that might have legs called climate change. This is early 80s. That's right. So that's how I got into climatology, and I got a good background in it. And somewhere around the mid-90s, I started inventing for climate change. So I remember doing teleport transit in like 1998. It just went on and on and on and on. Uh, One thing I am is just plain stubborn prolific, and I kept after it. And that's why I have 100,000 words on my website. And it's all about a 360-degree look at climate change. And folks, that website is clinkmansolar.com. We're talking with Paul Klinkman. Mm -hmm. You'll have to spell it. K-L-I-N-K-M-A-N. I could spell it as K-L-I-N-K-M-A-N, solar, S-O-L-A-R.com. But I could also just say, go via northernspiritradio.org, and everyone will spell that right. Okay. First of all, I want to go back to your vision. You were not using mind-altering substances to have this unguided, guided meditation? Quakerism. (laughs) Which is to say, no. Okay. I myself have had mind-altering experiences with no substances to push it. So I understand that that happens, and... People don't normally think of liberals or progressives or something having something that might closer to speaking in tongues or to those kind of visions, but we do, occasionally, at least. Oh, yeah, there are Quaker jokes about it. (laughs) You got any good ones you can share with our audience for Spirit in Action? Oh, there was this guy. He was pretty new. His name was Henry. He was sitting in meeting, and he felt a need to get up and speak and say something. And he didn't. He couldn't. He just felt, I'm not going to. And then somebody across the room got up and said almost exactly the same thing. And then at the end of worship, an elder turned to Henry and said, next time, Henry, say it thyself. (laughs) Now, I just heard a couple of days ago somebody say this was real life for them. 
somebody across the room said almost exactly the same thing. Yeah, in the plenary just the other night that was said. And in fact, I had that same experience in the 1980s when I was in Milwaukee. I was told in the silence the meeting there, the Quaker meeting was going through some travail. And I felt like I was supposed to sing Kumbaya. And that would just be too kitschy, you know, just who who would say that? That was just too. And so I fought it and I went through the whole Quaker trembling thing and that, and finally that died down. And then across the room, someone stood up and the only time in my life I've ever heard a Quaker meeting, someone stands up, sing Kumbaya. Oh, sing the Joan Baez prison version. She learned this in prison because of civil disobedience. Kumbaya, Lord, kumbaya. Kumbaya, Lord, kumbaya. Kumbaya, Lord, kumbaya. Oh, Lord, kumbaya. (laughs) Have you been to prison too, Paul? Not really. The not really part would be I was arrested and lost. (laughs) Uh, I was up in Seabrook, and they arrested 1,450 people, and they arraigned 1,414, and they released 35, sometimes because they were too young or whatever, or blind, and they lost one. And... uh, I saw this was, as Seabrook, you would be protesting nuclear power. Yes. People were whispering around the uh, armory, hey, there's this one guy, he's not charged with anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, early 80s, you have an experience, of a vision, a a waking dream, which relates to climate change very clearly. My recollection is that climate change kind of became a thing on the map 86, 87. So this is well before that. My boss was speaking on it starting in the summer of 1984. So basically within the climate movement, it started with a bunch of geologists who were studying the Holocene 6,000 years ago between the ice ages. So this theory, climate change, spread among the more conservative climatologists at the time. They're not going to jump onto something that might not be true. So it did have legs already back then. Or it had tentative. Uh, Tom was being very careful to keep himself away from it, but he had to. Legs, yeah. So you started inventing things. And again, your website is clinkmansolar.com. I assume you're also using other people's technology. I mean, as an engineer, you know how to take this piece and this piece, and if we put them together this way, right? I am happy to grab anything from anybody, and I'm happy if other people grab other things from me. As a matter of fact, that's how the movement, I figure we're going to have a climate R&D movement. That's how the movement is going to work. If somebody has something better than I do, or if somebody invents something in addition to what I did, you know, a little doodad on the side, that's fine. That's how it's supposed to work. Are you patenting all this stuff or not? I figure one of the problems with patents is if you don't patent it, then GE or someone will patent it and prevent other people from having it. But if you patent it, you can control how it's distributed. I am letting my current patents lapse. I have two patents, one for a greenhouse, one for an air tube that runs up the side of a mountain and does a lot of things. It transports moist air to the top of a mountain, and you can get a lot of snowpack. It can restore glaciers. It can generate electricity on the way up. It can serve as the cooling part of creating more moisture, which we need in the West. Anyways, those patents are lapsing. 
And why are you letting them lapse instead of trying to control them for the good of people? Or can you put them into the commons? Well, they by letting them lapse, they are in the commons. Now, the real story is it is impossible for inventors to make money, as near as I can tell. There's two problems. Uh, the big problem is that the federal government, which should, in theory, be funding all of this, is a revolving door from uh, the fossil fuel industry. They look at this and say, well, this invention will bankrupt the fossil fuel industry. Trash can. This, on the other hand, is a big money maker. Let's put billions into that. So it's not what you're inventing as much as have you found a friendly government that really cares about climate change that will support you in your prototyping? And it may be a friendly university that wants to become famous and not pedantic. It may be a friendly philanthropist that wants to be known as a real stand-up guy. It may be a state government that says, this is great for our state's or our region's economic development and not theirs. It may be a lot of things. It may be a country like Denmark that said, well, we're going to fund offshore wind because we have to, and discovered it made them wealthy. Well, we're going to head toward, again, ideas, engineering, and scientific ideas that will help roll back the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But first of all, give me an overview of the kind of inventions, the things you've created. I'm trying to take as much of a 360-degree look at everything involving climate change as I can. So the obvious start is displacing fossil fuels. And some of the big targets there are home heating or building heating, generation of electricity as close to 100% renewable as possible, much better transit. There are industrial processes such as heating iron ore for steel and heating glass and making concrete that need to be fixed. Then I move on to we have natural sources of carbon, which absolutely must be on the agenda. The permafrost is melting. Yale 360 online magazine said in 2020, January 21st, I believe it was, that they estimated that 20% of the permafrost will melt in 20 years. And that adds up to 20% of, Bill McKibben says, 1.7 teratons of new greenhouse gases. We need to impede that. I look at the heat domes. There is a cycle of heat domes and tree deaths via fires or by insects or by just plain drought. Heat and drought is killing trees, and that feeds back into the heat domes. It turns out that the bare ground created when mature trees dies picks up the sun's heat, and it quickly becomes dry, and then it becomes hot, and then the heat lasts for weeks. There are ways of interrupting this cycle, ways of inhibiting it. It involves hard work, but we can do that. So from the point of an overview, I would say that you're not saying, let's just go out and worry about one problem. You're saying we need to approach all of them at the same time, I think. I can take 10 problems that we're not approaching now, and we need to. And we need the activists to be on our side so that the governments do the work and they don't have gum on their shoe. So Klinkman Solar, for instance, I assume solar mm -hmm. photovoltaic panels, maybe not. Maybe that's not something you do. Do you do that kind of work? I have not mentioned hardly photovoltaic panels. I'm very strong on the direct use of solar heat. 
especially using heliostats to focus the light and heat where we need it. What's a heliostat? A heliostat is a tracking solar mirror that focuses the light on one spot all day. So it usually has uh, two motors. One turns the mirror up and down. One turns it from side to side. So no matter where the sun is in the sky, it bounces at the target. So it's a way of focusing sunlight in one place. That's right. So a heliostat, actually when solar first became popular in the late 1970s, the funding for that, I put solar panels on my house for collecting heat for heating hot water. So heliostat does that and more? The first use of a heliostat that we've seen is a solar power tower. And they have some of them in California or out in the desert. The problem with a solar power tower is they're focusing like hundreds of times normal solar power on this one target in the sky in the middle. That kills birds, any birds that fly through. And usually it kills insects and the birds are attracted by uh, the wonderful idea of cooked insects. And then the birds fly through and they are no longer birds. There are solutions. One solution I'd like to look into is focusing solar light down a tube, and you can concentrate it in a tube fairly safely. Very little of the light, if you've focused it almost in parallel, will bounce against the walls of the tube. So the goal is to focus an awful lot of light and heat and power to, for example, a hillside. Inside a hill, if you put the heat in a hill, we know that the heat will be there six months from now. The two examples would be a housing development in Alberta, Canada called Drake Landing. It displaces 97% of its heating needs through seasonally stored solar. It takes the solar power, puts it down into the ground 100 feet with hot water, and in the winter it's there, and they bring it up and heat the houses. Another example is Iceland that has these lava flows that turn into really hot lava beds, and they tap them and generate 50 years of electricity out of them. We can heat a hill, if it's waterproofed, to 300 degrees, 400 degrees, and we can generate electricity on winter nights when the sun isn't shining and when the wind isn't blowing. And that's seasonal storage as opposed to battery storage, which only lasts a few hours. We don't have to have rare earths or anything for the seasonal storage. It's just heat in the rocks. I feel like we're jumping a few steps ahead, but I want to make sure. So you are talking about uses of solar energy. What I was asking you originally was, we're not just looking at one miracle solution that's going to clean up the mess we make. We have to stop the energy waste on the front end. We have to generate our electricity from non-fossil fuel sources. We have to find ways to clean it up so it's not putting carbon dioxide or methane or other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But there is cleanup and there are various steps along the way. And I think you look at all of them in your 10,000 words. It's 100,000 words. It's war and peace for engineers. I want to see on the order of 100 teams of engineers building prototypes. I want to see committees of partly engineers deciding which projects are going to not cost that much to put together. will be out in a couple of years assuming everything works well, and will have gigaton effects. And there's a lot of projects that could do that.
So we need to shepherd what money we can, and we don't have any right now, but we will have money. I trust this is how climate change is going to change. Sometimes a project will die two weeks after we start it. Some curmudgeon will come up with a wonderful idea. Uh, That's not going to work. Look at this. And we have to thank the curmudgeon. He saved us a lot of money. He only cost us a couple of hundred dollars. Good. And sometimes we're going to get into the prototypes, and the prototypes are going to have some side issue that we can't quite solve. And sometimes we're going to hit a victory, and then we will be really proud. And we'll be ramping it up and getting it out there. So we're going to go through some of the detail in the second half of Spirit in Action. But I want to remind you folks, this is Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On that site, we have 19 years of our program. So we'll have a link there to clinkmansolar.com where you can follow much more of the detail that Paul's talking about today. You can follow all of our other guests. You can post comments on our programs. You can see the 35 to 45 stations nationwide wide that carry our programs and you can make a donation to support us. One of the main ways that we remain true to our calling for Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul and Northern Spirit Radio is that we do not accept funding from corporations or from government because those always come with strings attached. So it's you, the listeners, who make it possible for us to continue. So sustainability for the earth is extremely important. We try and lift up that goal by our guests here for Spirit in Action. So please support us and please support the community radio stations, which get alternative music and ideas out there to the world. And again, Paul Klinkman is here. KlinkmanSolar.com is his website. We talked a little bit about home heating. I'm very tempted at each point to drill down. So give us the big points and then let's drill down into them. Home heating, you mentioned, you mentioned electric generation, transit, and natural sources of carbon was something you were talking about. Are there more major points that we want to talk about? I'm almost ready to mention a certain Old Testament story. This Old Testament story is a test of the climate emergency broadcasting system. If this had been an actual climate emergency, God would want you to save the animals. Now, we're not saving the animals, but we know how. We know how to save the California condor. We know how to breed giant pandas in zoos. Maybe we can do this. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he landed high and dry. The Lord looked down from his window in the sky, said, I created man, I don't remember why. Nothing but fighting since creation day. I'll send a little water and I'll wash them all away. The Lord came down to look around a spell. There he found Noah behaving mighty well, and that is the reason the scriptures record Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord And he landed high and dry And the Lord said, Noah, there's gonna be a flood There's gonna be some water and there's gonna be some mud. 
Take off your hat, no, and take off your coat. Get a saw and hammer and build yourself a boat. Noah said, Lord, I don't believe I could. Lord said, Noah, get some sturdy gopher wood. Never know what you can do till you try. Build it 50 cubits long and 30 cubits high. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he landed high and dry. Noah said, there it is. There it is, Lord. The Lord said, Noah, it's time to get aboard. Take every creature, a he and a she, and of course, Mrs. Noah and the whole family. Noah said, Lord, it's getting mighty dark. The Lord said, Noah, get those creatures in the ark. Noah said, Lord, it's beginning to pour. The Lord said, Noah, hurry up and shut the door. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he landed high and dry. Well, the ark rose up on the foot of the deep. After 40 days, Mr. Noah took a peek. He said, we ain't moving, Lord. Where are we at? The Lord said, you're sitting on a Mount Ararat. Noah said, Lord, it's getting mighty dry. The Lord said, Noah, see my rainbow in the sky. Take all the creatures and people to earth. And don't be more trouble than you're worth. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he landed high and dry. And he landed high and dry. And he landed high and dry. <laughs> so you learned that in your poli sci course? <laughs> um, lyrics are from Tennessee Ernie Ford, and I needed a new melody because I didn't like the old melody. Concern for animals is part of it. You mentioned in talking about the solar that birds could die or would die in the vicinity. They'd get yeah. completely incinerated. Yeah, the solution is never to concentrate more than five or ten times outside where the birds can fly. Send it in. You can have gratings that keep the birds out, very thin gratings, or just plain glass will work too. Then you pipe the light to where you need it. You can change the light to very hot oil, very hot eutectic salts. They're a very hot fluid, basically a mixture of chemicals. Well, the engineering idea is if you mix regular solid salt and solid ice, you will get a liquid called salt water. Eutectic salts are like that at a much higher temperature, and they are useful for uh, moving high-temperature heat through pipes. So you can store heat. I call it tertiary storage of heat when you're storing it for six months or for two years, as opposed to short-term storage of heat, which is what we now do with batteries. Although you may find out that batteries are more expensive because of all the rare minerals than just storing the heat in the ground. 
Isn't it a question of insulation, though? I mean, because part of what people are very fond these days of geothermal, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is usually doing your heat exchange with the underground, uh, which doesn't get as cold as it does on the surface in winter, for example. So you're actually maybe drawing heat from or warming up underground, depending on the season. Dirt and rock are insulating. We know this because Iceland has lava fields that stay hot for 50 years, maybe longer. But geothermal, doesn't that at one point or another affect the underground when you're doing heat exchange from the underground to your homes? It does locally. I would use the entire top of the hill for solar collection. Any of these techniques that you're going to be talking about, that you are talking about, they have possible negative consequences, effects on the environment, and so we need curmudgeons to point them out, as you said. Almost every invention has something negative about it, although what we're looking for the ones that have the least negative side issues, because we have to take care of all the side issues. Some of my discoveries are about the side issues. I mean, I wanted to get rid of bird kills, which are stopping solar electricity, and that can be done. Not to beat a dead horse here, but we have to do this at all parts of the process. We have to decrease how many people are wasting energy at the front end. I mean, don't go flying across the globe if you don't need to, right? That's part of the 360 degrees. Excuse me for leaving out the obvious parts. (laughs) Well, these are the parts that everybody else is looking at, and I have a feeling you're looking deeper at portions that we need to fill in the picture. Is that a fair thing to say? I am deliberately looking at the other parts, yes. So just putting up photovoltaic panels, a lot of people looking at that, that's not where you're focused. No, I think photovoltaic panels are a lot better than burning coal. That said, photovoltaic panels aren't perfect. They use rare metals. If we can get away from that, we will. Give me an idea of some of the other forms of dealing with climate crisis that maybe people haven't even thought of. I'm sure there's literature out there on almost all of this. Well, I'll start with the Arctic thaw-out. This is important, mission-critical, and the best tool is restoration of the Arctic Ocean's ice pack. And as I can see it, the preferred tool is a seawater pump that is wind-powered. And when it's 40 below zero up on the uh, Arctic ice pack, uh, we want to pump seawater above the ice And as long as it's below, I believe the temperature is uh, 22 degrees Fahrenheit, we will start to get ice crystals and residual salt brine. And the salt brine will soon enough find its way back into the ocean. This is a device. The windmill turns, the water pumps. There are two side issues with it, the first being that anything can freeze, so you probably want uh, little electric wires that generate a little bit of heat that keep some of the passages and important things open. We can do that. That's cheap. And the other is that if you put a foot of water above the ice and it turns into 10 inches of ice, that pulls the whole ice pack down and it pulls the uh, machine that you're working with down 10 inches. And within 15 feet, you have swallowed up your windmill. So this has four floats and some wires so that the floats are actually floating. And every foot that you go up, you have to pop the floats loose. They are conical so they don't stick and they go up a foot. Or rather, if you go down 12 inches, they go up 11 inches. That's how ice works. 
I want a system so good that it can create several hundred feet of ice down below, which would close the Thwaite Glacier in Antarctica. And again, what a lot of people don't realize, perhaps, the problem with the melting of permafrost of, of areas which have been ice-covered, and, and when you do that and you get open water, all of a sudden you're absorbing a lot more heat, and it's, it becomes a tipping point for the Earth. That's right. So it's real important that that one place, if you can stop that tipping point from bouncing over to the other side, we may be able to prevent total catastrophe. Uh, Creating ice so that it's not blue up there is one tool for cooling the Arctic. Is this something that's been tried? Is something you've only conceived of? Where is it in terms of development? It has not been tried. We need somebody to build a model that will fit in their freezer or in a walk-in freezer. Then we need somebody to build something that works in a barrel in their backyard. That's a good enough test, a scale model. The first scale models are cheap, and they prove something. So at this point, we've got concept, we need to demonstrate that, and then you have to scale it and try it in the real environment. We may ignore the fact that walruses like to knock over windmills or something. No, polar bears like to knock over windmills. Okay. <laughs> they, they are certain that if there is something human, there might be a bag of french fries somewhere. <laughs> That's what garbage dump paraders know, and they're smart bears. So the next item you wanted to go on to? For cooling the permafrost more directly, snow. This may involve artificial snowmaking, but the winds up there are super, which means that if you can throw snow in the air, it'll go a long distance. We want to make it white between, let's say, March or April and July, if we can. That will directly put down a white layer of snow, which is natural. The elk can dig through and, you know, the caribou can dig through and and eat what's down there. And it will reflect the sun back into space like it used to. Right now, the tundra is drying out and it's catching fire. That's just plain no good for a lot of reasons. So you're talking about building a great big snow machine. I'm talking about building thousands of them so that we can coat most of Alaska, most of Upper Canada, most of Siberia after we get some we can we can get a handshake really if something's important we can get a handshake with Russia on it that's how the the mostly war is working if it's something else we're dealing so we would cool Siberia and we would restore the arctic ocean back to its normal white states so that it's not absorbing in early winter it's better if the ground is bare because there is no sunlight up there in early winter And uh, if it's bare, it's not insulated, that means the 40 degrees below zero cold seeps into the permafrost naturally, and we want to enhance that. I wouldn't plow the snow, but I would at least, uh, one technique is to take a half a pipe, just an empty pipe, and put it so that the wind goes through the pipe, and so that the snow is not insulating uh, the ground from the 40 below zero uh, cold. That would help freeze the permafrost. Again, with this uh, linchpin for the future of the Earth, if we have white ground reflecting heat back to the sky, then essentially we can keep global warming at bay for a while. Again, folks, we're talking with Paul Klinkman. The website for Paul Klinkman is klinkmansolar.com. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. So in terms of trying to prevent this climate catastrophe, 
one of the things is to protect the permafrost, make the northern climbs, and I assume also southern climbs. Do we have to worry about Antarctica? Yes. We worry about the whole Earth. We want to... Oh, one more thing on the, on the big list. We want to enhance, in almost every biome you can think of, we want to enhance carbon absorption, carbon sequestration, and we want to minimize carbon loss. And what does that involve? How can we do that? The best way to sequester carbon turns out to be bogs and marshes. They are really great. You can go to peat bogs, and there are thousands of years of peat that have been laid down. Archaeologists dig down there, and they find people buried in the peat bogs. And So we know they've just been laying down carbon for that. Uh, one way to enhance peat bogs if we're feeling really cheap is to have more beavers. Beavers absorb carbon. Well, what they do is they cut down trees and then they eat the bark off and then the heavier wood winds up at the bottom of the pond. And so they're helping to build carbon sinks. The other reason to have beavers is that fires are destroying trees. And if you have a stream, its width has been enhanced by beavers. The fire won't jump the fire line. Fires don't jump over marshes very easily. So a uh, You can have Smokey the beaver. So is there a way to multiply beavers? The beavers know everything about that. But what can we as humans do or change what we're doing so that beavers persist and have a greater role? Don't trap them. Change the economics of beaver pelts. Actually, one of the problems is that beavers, when they do put up beaver dams, they are taking over land that humans want. So there is a little bit of human beaver trouble. I figure the number of people is the biggest trouble that we have. I have a feeling that if we didn't have the populations that currently exist in China and North America, that perhaps the planet would be doing fine in terms of the carbon balance. With all research and development ideas, you need to ask, what's this going to cost? How long is it going to to implement? And how many gigatons is it going to save? In the case of population decreased, it's going to cost an awful lot, I think. But more important, it's going to take a long, long time. To decrease population. That's right. Unless we had something like, say, a pandemic that was very effective. Yeah. I don't think we can politically do that. I'm not asking for it. But I did read The Stand by Stephen King. Oh, okay. Which actually postulates that kind of thing going on, right? Not unusual to have stories that way. I once postulated a graduate student who invented a self-replicating system, and he set it loose in uh, the Sahara Desert with the goal of putting up reflectors all over the Sahara automatically. That would do a lot, but there are other things that also work on deserts. A strange thing happened in the country of Niger. It's a semi-desert there uh, leading into the Sahara Desert. And colonists, of course, came there and tried mechanized farming, and it failed. And they just left the junky land to the subsistence farmers. And then a couple of farmers discovered with the aid of an aid worker that if they had this certain tree called a winter thorn tree growing, their crops doubled. It turned out that the winter thorn tree has a really deep tap root. And so if it's bottom land, it pulls water up from way deep all summer and it humidifies the air 
and it slows down the wind, which means millet grown near a tree doubles in yield. And it also adds nitrogen. It fixes nitrogen. And uh, so they started saying one of these trees is worth 10 cattle. And they planted 200 million new trees. They said, we can turn this semi-arid and scrubland and desert into farmland. So all of a sudden, Niger is lots of trees. This is going entirely different from the Horn of Africa, where all the trees have disappeared. And I'm hoping that it helps their drought. And it leads to hope for us, because Oregon here, they lost 1.1 million acres of fir trees in the 2021 drought and fires. So is it applicable to have thorn trees here? No, but we can do, well, there are different kinds of trees, but also one thing they were trying in Africa was little swales, micro swales. They dig a couple of little ditches leading on a slope down to a little hole. And then more of the water winds up in the hole and it winds up as groundwater as opposed to flood water downstream. That would give one tree a better chance. You would need billions of these things, but we have college students that need summer jobs. So here's another way that we can be dealing with pieces of the big picture. Yes, we need to test them out. So talk a little bit about the practicalities of getting these tested out. You've conceived of them. You're probably not only you. I think you've probably read other people working in that area. How do you get it to reality? I don't know exactly. I think how we do it, Martin Luther King said that we need two things. First, public awareness, and second, legal action to get things done. The public awareness is probably what we need to get the research and development done. I think when the people are there, the research money will be found. You don't need a lot to have a student write a paper on whether this might actually work, or of course this won't work. You don't need much money to build a little HO scale prototype. You you start to need a lot of money only if it's a transit innovation. In that case, you need $100 million in crash testing. But almost all of this, you just build it. Find a mechanic, go to your wood shop, build a series of prototypes, and figure out the problems. So is Bill Gates going to fund this kind of thing, or is that... Bill Gates would really like to look intelligent and wise... And I think he would fund this. And the other part for Bill Gates is he is one of the Midwest's largest landowners. And if he bought up all that land and it turns into unfarmable cropland, he will look silly. I think he would do the right thing. And he would say, you know, I need windbreaks for my cropland. I need forests in back of it to humidify the air so that we get more rainfall on my cropland. I don't care about everybody else. I want to do well. But then after that, yeah, I want to do a better world. So, yes, Bill Gates will wake up, but we have to reach him. So perhaps there's a listener here for Spirit in Action who's good friends with Bill can ring him up and say, hey, you should be talking to this guy, Paul Klinkman, and maybe you can come up with a solution that's going to prevent or at least limit the amount of catastrophes we have to go through. We might find a hundred billionaires that want to do the same thing and we'll beat Bill to the punch. Here's some of the solution. Now, we've covered at least a handful or two of them. Are there any other particularly exciting ones that you want to make sure our listeners for Spirit in Action think about? I can only deal with the gigaton scale at this point. 
that's how many are back there on, on the megaton scale of greenhouse gases. Teleport Transit is a large collection of new transit ideas. And I sort of describe it as a development, a natural development of where we are to where we're going to be in 15 or 20 years. So where we are is there is in Portland, Oregon, and I just wrote it for the first time, a tram that's held up by two fixed cables, and it has wheels that rolls on the two cables. This means that the two cables don't have to move, and there are fewer moving parts. What I want is a tram that has two moving cables, but it has batteries on board. They can be lead-acid batteries, for all I care, the cheap ones. And it recharges at stations, and it goes anywhere in town because it's, we have two cables over the street. By doing that, if we have cars that can go anywhere in town and we have extra cars that can sit at little elevator stations, you can go to an elevator station, push the button, the double elevator's door open, you get your wheelchair in, and you're across town in five minutes as opposed to waiting at the parking garage. And there are options of Because these cars can be pulled up and down using elevator cables, you know, little sections of rail can lift the car, we can have little tiny stations. People are thinking in terms of uh, elevated stations that hold 50 people up. I'm thinking of one parking spot stations where the car comes down, the elevator doors come open, you get in, or it lands on the subway platform, or it even goes in buildings that are enabled for this, and it goes to the fifth floor, and you can get the coffee wagon out and in. And Anyways, it's elevator automation. There's almost no objects up there to hit. There are no drunk drivers, no road rage. There might be a couple of branches that fall over or a squirrel, and that's it. There's no kids with balls that you have to worry about. It's easy to automate and much safer. And two cables, of course, for safety. By two cables, you mean going opposite directions? or Nope. Two cables holding up the same car. Four cables total. So you got reinforcement if one fails? That's right. And there are all sorts of options that I won't be able to get into. But the idea is something so quick, urban quick, that nobody wants to drive a car. And so pleasant because you are not driving So pleasant that my car can have a refrigerator and a cot and a big screen because I'm not driving and I can have leisurely breakfast. And one option is have these cars plug into commuter trains that are also above grade so that you can get into Boston. And if this works, almost anything except boats can be hauled if there's a 1,200-pound limit. So the answer is there will be almost nothing on the street except bicycles and pedestrians. My assumption is that whatever metropolis or town has these things, you have park and ride places. Because for me, given that I live six miles outside of town, it's not particularly obvious for me to get to one of these stations. Early on, that's true. Later on, because the system costs one-tenth of what an automobile costs per passenger mile, And because you can probably have private cars where you can store all your junk and everybody loves their junk and you can sleep in it too, for that matter, they'll build that little cable out there because cables are a lot cheaper than streets and they're a lot cheaper than new freeways too. New freeway might run a billion dollars a mile, urban, and they go over rivers like nothing. They just do everything right. You talk about this as if it's been implemented somewhere or at least partially. 
Like I say, the tramway system has only been implicated in Portland, and Toulouse, France, has systems that they roll on below two cables, and the third cable is used as their pulling cable, and they release from the third cable when they want to come to a stop for 30 seconds, so you can get off and on easily. So it's going to be an incremental number of improvements, but once those are done, the system explodes, as near as I can tell because nobody wants a slow, stressful ride into town when you can have your own car and your own fridge and your own meal or your own conversation with somebody. It's faster, for one thing, if you load it onto a commuter train and if you don't have to worry about a parking garage. It uses less electricity. It's cheaper. That's the thing. Except, as we know, there are people who are invested in the current technology. I have my highway building company. I don't want those highways to go away, right? I would never go to the Department of Transportation and propose this. They would say yes, except we can say no. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Folks, by the way, if you look on NordenSpiritRadio.org and search for my interview with Steve Terelliger several years ago, you'll find him talking exactly about this kind of solution. And uh, there's a lot of the detail pros and cons of this kind of situation. Not a lot of cons, admittedly, but it will take uh, certainly a lot of investment and it will take a changing of people's minds about how things work. But it's a very exciting alternative to how we could be doing transportation in a way that doesn't damage the earth and, again, climate catastrophe we're hoping to avoid. As you've been talking through this, it's been kind of a scattergun approach. That is, say, here's one thing, here's one thing, here's one thing. Do you have any sense of these technologies, which one might be closest to being technologically ready to go and most affordable that we could get to the quickest? I have a greenhouse. It's in West Greenwich, Rhode Island. It's off-grid. I consider it to be the best greenhouse in the world. It has this big wall. It's a linear trough wall of reflectors. I use 12-inch by 12-inch mirrors, and it reflects a lot of light through a line of windows. And after the light gets through the line of windows, it spreads back out so that eight feet away, it hits the leaves of the plants. So that's part one. We get a lot of light, and we only have 5% of the whole building as glass. That means this is a really cheap greenhouse because it's only 5% glass and 95% insulated wall and roof. The mirrors are glass. The mirrors are glass, yes, but we don't have high-performance glass at all. Matter of fact, we were so cheap. This is Rhode Island, and we can get away with single-pane glass, and we did. And we, can, we were so cheap, we got away with R10 insulation, which, as everybody knows, is not standard. But we can get away with that because we have so much heat and light coming in, and we're storing it so efficiently. That's part two. We got an attic gable vent fan with an attached photovoltaic panel. And when the sun shines is exactly when the greenhouse air is warm. And so the photovoltaic panel turns the fan and we store the hot air in rocks under the floorboard. And some of that heat goes down from the rocks into the soil. So we have extra multi-day heat storage. And at night or on cloudy days when it's a blizzard, the heat rises. So we're off-grid, and if you keep the windows clean, and that's a big if sometimes at this school, we have a 12-month greenhouse. Which we are you talking about? 
This is at the Green School, which is a charter high school in West Greenwich, Rhode Island. And this greenhouse is one that you built or that you designed? I designed it and I helped build it. Some other people from the Green School helped build it. And the parts cost a total of $5,000. Now, on the one hand, we splurged on really good wood, uh, nice cedar. On the other hand, we got a deal with Home Depot. So $5,000 for parts isn't that bad. And we get about 100 square feet of direct reflected sunlight in the windows. So that's a lot of, I don't measure it by how many square feet we have on floor space. I measure it by how much we can grow. And that's related to how much sun. And it just works. There's a thousand more ideas that people will find on clinkmansolar.com. Paul's got his contact information there. You can get a hold of him and share your ideas, help plan them, motivate them, implement them in certain places, whichever way you want to work. He's happy to collaborate. So clinkmansolar.com, the link's on nordenspiritradio.org. We talk about more, Paul, but our time is up, except that I would left a little slice of time so we could have one more song. I understand you want to conclude with something special? Okay. I'm especially concerned with, I'll call it political organizing, of how are we going to get this done? I don't want delay. And we have delay, and we have more delay, but we'll fix that. Blessed is the thrush's call, piercing through the deepest night. Blessed is the morning star, piercing through the early light. Blessed is the dawning sun, rising up from earth to sky. Blessed is the dawn of hope, rising up in you and I. Thanks so much, Paul. We'll have links to Paul Klinkman, klinkmansolar.com, on nordenspiritradio.org. Really, there's so much on the site. We scratched the surface here today for Spirit in Action. But come back next week, and I'm sure we'll be delving into more important ways that we can heal the earth. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh